the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, what did former President Obama have to say about UFOs? And then social media is so divisive. We're going to talk to author Doug Bursch about what we can do about that. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Happy Wednesday. Glad to have you all with us today. Hope you're having a good day. All right, Aubrey, going to start with your favorite thing today. We are going to start with sports. Sports time! Sports talk! Now, we are going to end with American Idol today, so I will feel the same. I feel like same. our producer, Debbie, needs to make a theme song for sports talk with Aubrey, <laughs> where she just pretends like she knows things. It is, uh, it, like I said, American Idol, although my kids do watch it, my daughter watches American Idol and my wife, so I do have so a little have, bit. These are some good bookends for us. They sports are. Sports and American Idol. It makes for good co-hosting. What are you, yeah. what are you interested in? Yeah. What am I interested in? I, yeah. I actually want to talk about leadership, but okay. it's the big sports story in Chicago right now, uh, and that's the Chicago White Sox, and let me, because I'm sure you didn't see it, let me tell you what happened. The White Sox the other day were beating the Minnesota Twins 15-4. to So, blow. Whoa, yes. Uh, the Minnesota Twins literally brought in a position player to pitch to kind of end the game. Okay. He's throwing like 50 miles an hour. White Sox guy, your mean Mercedes, comes up. 3-0 count, so you're, apparently you're not supposed to swing at 3-0 when you're blowing the other team out. Sportsmanship Just because it's, okay, gotcha. He swung and launched them. Like, no! 400 plus. And then here's where it gets interesting. Most people are like, that's fun, whatever. They yeah. brought in a position player. The White Sox really old manager, Tony La Russa, uh-huh. went off on his own player. No, really? Uh, in the media, just saying he's gonna be he's gonna there's gonna be consequences. This isn't like right. Like this was too arrogant or show offy or something. It's the I'm using air quotes, it's the uh, unwritten rules of baseball. Gotcha. Okay. And then okay, everyone thought it was dumb, but everyone thought it was done. No more. Well, next day Tony La Russa comes in and starts talking about it no! again. Starts talking again. Then last night's game, Minnesota is playing again. The White Sox. Okay. Uh, Minnesota guy throws at Mercedes. So the guy who did it there okay. throws at him, hits him. And I want you to hear what Tony LaRussa after the game had to say about this. Okay. Umpire's opinion going obvious to me. Guy threw a sinker and, you know, it didn't look good. <clears throat> so I, 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 I didn't have, I wasn't that suspicious. I suspicious somebody throws at somebody's head. And they're not suspicious. So, I don't, I don't have a problem with how Twins handled that. All right, so after the game, Tony LaRusso says, I understand why they threw at him, and I don't have a problem with it. Wow! And so Chicago baseball fans right now, if you, if you listen to sports radio, are going crazy about this. At the manager, like, he's mm-hmm. got to have the back of his people. Right. Uh, and, and instead of saying, hey, I'm okay with the other team throwing 95 miles an hour with a ball at, at my guy. this guy. Because he swung at a pitch at 3-0 when they had in... So anyway, I'm not going to ask you if it's right or wrong. Okay, I appreciate I want to spin this into a leadership conversation. Look you and you. I are both pastors. Yep. We have people with us. My biggest problem with what Tony La Russa did is he sold his guy out. That's what I, that's what I was thinking Three as a times. listener. Yeah. Three yeah. times. Yeah. Even if you thought it was wrong, he could have said, uh, you know, 
Mercedes, your, your mean Mercedes. I love him. He was a missed sign. He's a yeah. little over exuberant. Yeah. It won't happen again. I yeah. still disagree with that take. But instead, he keeps selling them out. And the result was his guy got thrown at. And then he said, I didn't have a problem with it. He keeps like hammering, hammering. Do you feel like there's a there's a history there? Like this feels like a little bit of an overreaction. You know what and it is? And is, is, is there subtext I don't know about? Here's the subtext. Is Tony La Russa is like 75, 80 years old. Okay. So it's just old school. You don't do it's that. exactly right. It's okay. old school. He's like, I got to teach these young whippersnappers. Yeah. How, but most people are going... <laughs> These unwritten rules of baseball are so dumb. Yeah. Like, okay, you can't swing at 3-0, but if you had thrown a strike, you can swing as hard as you want at the next pitch. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's kind of it's weird. Okay, so what's the leadership lesson? So what do you do? Let's pretend it's at your church. Okay. okay? So it's, okay. Not, it's not in the media, but it's yes. in front of your church. Uh, somebody on your staff does uh-huh. something that you disagree with. Right. So Tony La Russa, your main Mercedes never did happens, by the way, or in old church. Exactly. <laughs> uh, your main Mercedes did something that Tony La Russa disagreed with. Yes. And La Russa obviously thought it's important to air out my feelings about it. Okay. Do you think it's ever appropriate to air out your feelings to the church? Go, hey, I, a lot of you disagree with what staff member X did. I want you to know I disagree too. And here it is. Or do you always need to have the back of your staff member? Right. And then behind closed doors, be like, don't ever do that. Yeah. Again. I mean, I think scripture is clear. You have to go to that person. You're not supposed to go around talking about it publicly. But I, I think practically as a leader, yeah, you've got you. You get your staff's back. You get your teammates back privately. If you need to have a one on one conversation and say, Hey, youngster, <laughs> hey, whippersnapper, <laughs> this is not appropriate. We don't right. do this here on this team or this staff or whatever. Let's let it not happen again. And then we know biblically, okay, if the kid does it again, you bring a group of elders, or you bring some other people, you do it again. Yeah. And then there are maybe some repercussions at that point. But I I think good leaders publicly get their team. Yes. I, I just do. I, I, I think this could divide the White Sox. The White Sox have the best record in baseball, I think, still at the moment. Amazing. It, the teammates all have the back of the player right now. Yeah, there's they should. Little, there's a little fracture yeah, that they maybe should. everyone will talk nice and it will be fine. But it bears watching all because, in my opinion, of bad leadership. Okay. I want to talk to you about something else. Okay. Let's listen to uh, this audio. Uh, former President Barack Obama uh, on one of the late night shows talking about a subject that is getting a lot of press these days, UFOs. The, tr- the truth is that when I came into office, I asked, right? I, I was like, all right, you know, is there the lab somewhere where we're keeping the uh, <laughs> alien specimens in spaceship? Uh, and, uh, uh, my, you know, they did a little bit of research and uh, uh, the answer was no. Think about it. All right, Aubrey, here's the question. Yeah. We got all these released uh, stuff. Right. The U.S. Navy is showing videos saying right. that there's UFOs. There's right. stuff. What do you do with UFO talk right now? I mean, I can't get there. Uh, so I I know some people believe in aliens and some people <laughs> believe. <laughs> I do. I watch a lot of movies. And some people believe in ghosts or, or vice versa. I, you know, I I could maybe believe in ghosts, but not in aliens. Like, I just can't get there. And so I'm like, sure, there's an unexplainable flying object. Yes. I am so not able to make the jump that that flying object is from outer space. I am so able to go, maybe it's from a different country. Maybe it's a drone. Maybe it's fake. Maybe it's like, I just can't get behind aliens. But my kids are 
following these stories. My kids are like, aliens are real, mom. You don't know. No. There's a multiverse out there. I don't know. What do you think? There's a multiverse. Yeah. They- See, it's, it's coming back to bite you. All, the all movies this Avengers, all this the- adventure stuff. Yeah. It is wild that the Navy is like, no, for years we've been tracking things that we can't explain. Now, right. obviously, President Obama. They have weird Obama- fly patterns yes. or whatever. Yeah. Obviously, President Obama was, he was on a late night show. He was doing lots of joking. And he did say that there were, they said, no, there's not aliens in some yeah, warehouse yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I am with you. I do not believe that there's these aliens, these other, but it is weird. <laughs> like you see these videos that haven't come out yet and you're like, what is that? Well, thing it's that certainly weird if it truly is from the Navy, because you kind of expect the military to be yes. serious, right? And so you kind of go, oh, uh oh, if the Navy can't explain what it is. But I, I, yeah, I can't make the leap from the video. It's like the Loch Ness Monster or like Bigfoot. Like I can't make the leap from the yes. video footage and the photo footage to like, an unidentified flying object. I don't know. I someday, can't get there. Someday we're going to get to heaven and just lined up are the aliens and Bigfoot <laughs> and the Loch Ness Monster. They're I all hope right so. There. I what? do like Nessie. Whoa, there they yeah, are. So yeah. anyway, start with sports and aliens. We're off and running today. Good Wednesday. On the Common Good. Yes, we're excited to be joined next by Doug Bursch. Doug Bursch is a co-pastor of Evergreen Foursquare Church in Auburn, Washington. He's also the author of a new book called Posting Peace. Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. That is an important conversation we're going to have next with Doug Bursch here on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined on the phone by Doug Bursch. Doug is co-pastor of Evergreen Foursquare Church in Auburn, Washington. He is also the author of a fascinating new book called Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. Doug, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I am doing great. And thanks for having me on this show. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Hey, before we d- dive into this book, and I can't tell you how much time we've spent talking about social media on this show. This so we such are a good topic. really excited to talk to you. But before we do that, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Oh, uh, well, I'm going to do a long one hour uh, introduction that starts with being born on a farm. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, uh, I know you, you two are both pastors. I, I, I've pastored for, I don't know, like 22 years. I also do other stuff like write and teach and, you know, I did radio for many years. Uh, and then, uh, write books and then I have a lovely family, you know, four kids, all that. So I'm trying to make it through a pandemic like everyone else. Yes, that's right. We're all just surviving. I love the title of your new book, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. Talk to us about how social media is shaping our culture and maybe specifically church culture right now. Yeah. By the way, thanks for mentioning the book several times. You know, I'll just keep going. Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. As a struggling author, I could always use the plug. But, you know, I, I, this is a serious issue. Uh, you know, everybody knows that we're becoming more divided. I mean, we just feel that way, right? We've used yeah. social media, whether you've recently or most of us at some level for many years. And we're just saying, why, why are we becoming more polarized? Why is it more divisive? And so that was more a personal search for me. And then from a media standpoint, I noticed that some of the most toxic expressions of uh, radio and TV, and I'm not talking about your show, even your title, Common Good, shows that you're, <laughs> you're for, but you know, many shows are building themselves based on the far right or the far left and extremism and just kind of 
our side against your side. We hope we win and you lose. And and I don't really think that's a very reconciling peacemaking dialogue. And I'm seeing what happened on radio and TV now becoming everyone's personal social media page where they get trending topics. They give strong opinions about them. They rally people around those opinions. And there's not much reconciliation or peacemaking going on. So that was the primary primary motivation for writing this book. Yeah. And I love that phrase being a, a, an online peacemaker. Help people understand what do you mean by what does it look like if we're doing that well, if we are an online peacemaker? Well, we need to be intentional. Uh, one of the things is the media itself is changing who we are and what we communicate. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, a technological theorist, said uh, the medium is the message, which mm-hmm. we don't understand that the the medium itself is actually influencing how we communicate. And so I go through that in quite a bit of detail with some research and try to be practical. But I think we need to be educated as Christians how we can just find ourselves moving in certain dehumanizing uh, directions. Uh, you know, one of the, the realities is even when people fight online, how do you primarily fight? It's usually through written communication. And the longer, you know, the longer the fight lasts, the longer the posts get. You ever see on Facebook where people just start writing whole chapters of what's wrong with the other person? And yes, the problem is writing only does one part of our brain. If you do actually do imaging, we're only accessing certain parts of our brain and other parts we're not. And the other parts we're not accessing are the big picture, problem solving, emotional kind of intelligence parts of our brain. So even there, the medium is actually influencing how we talk about a topic. And so we're just escalating with one aspect and not getting a holistic thing. Also, other things is, you know, the ability to have like intonation. You can tell right now that I'm not mad at you. At least I hope you can tell right, right. by my intonation. And then if we're looking at each other face to face, we can tell. Right. We can tell by those that you're either smiling or frowning. And all those issues uh, develop concepts of apathy So those are just a few of them. And there's just hundreds of ways that this technology is kind of only presenting uh, a certain part of us and often not the best part of us. Mm -hmm. So the question is, this part of your subtitle, what can we do about it? And that's what I want to know. What are just some tips you have for people to promote peacemaking online on social media? Yeah, well, there's nothing we can do. We can just complain until Christ returns. (laughs) It's kind of how... Isn't that we can all just sit around and go, oh, it's just terrible. But there has to be things. One, we need to be intentional that as Christians, uh, the Apostle Paul says pretty clearly, we're called to the ministry of reconciliation. And this goes beyond racial reconciliation. Reconciliation is that I'm going to communicate so that people can be drawn closer to God and closer to each other. And people might go, oh, yeah, I know that's that's Christianity. But I don't think we're really looking at that. For instance, politics. Um there's a difference between communicating your politics in a reconciling manner and communicating your politics in a partisan manner. A partisanship, the goal is we win, you lose. I get 50.5% of the vote. Uh, you go away. It's our America, not yours. The goal of partisan politics is often not about reconciliation. Now, a Christian politic would be this. I believe I have some truth here, and I'm communicating this to you because I love you. Mm-hmm. I want you to come into the light. I want you to come out of darkness, or, or I think you've bought into a lie, and I want you to find the truth that is hidden in Christ. But we're communicating that because we're trying to actually reach that person with the love of God. And I can ask any of your listeners, is that your intention when you begin to fight about politics online? And if mm-hmm. it's not, you have to stop doing it. Yeah. Because if love isn't your motivator for communicating truth, then it stops being truth. Because mm-hmm. truth is embodied in Christ Jesus, who is both truth and both love. And that's hard. 
But if we lose that focus, so and that's a very kind of even churchy answer, but I think it's a legitimate answer that Christians should look radically different, not just in our content, but in the way we communicate our content online. And right now, you can't necessarily see that with some people. They just look, Christians look more opinionated and more argumentative. Right. And that can't be the way we witness Christ in this world. Yeah, yeah. So, Doug, I don't think many of us want to get rid of social media. Like, we don't want to go back to a day where Twitter or Facebook doesn't exist, at least most days. Some days I do, but most <laughs> days, like, it's a, what do you see as the positives of social media? We, we're talking a lot about what the dangers of social media are, but in your mind, what are the positives of social media? Well, and I'm so glad you brought that up because my, my goal is not, I, I use social media endlessly, probably too much. I'm not addicted. I just choose to use it all the time, but. <laughs> <laughs> What we need to realize is it exaggerates the best and the worst of humanity. It's, uh, again, Marshall McLuhan, uh, this technological theorist, he talked about how every technology extends a part of human capacity and it also weakens a part. So there's parts of social media that extend our desire to connect with people. I mean, that's huge, right? The, the ability to, uh, to like, if you've been abused by the church, you can connect with people all around the world who've also had that same abuse experience. Uh, mm -hmm. If you faced a misogynistic experience where you've been uh, attacked as a woman, you know, verbally or physically or whatever, you can unite with other people with that same story or who value your story. Uh, so it's allowing us to connect with all sorts of people. But that ability to connect with everyone is also hurting our ability to connect in deep ways with individuals. And so it's weakening our ability to do some things that we used to be able to do. And one of my arguments on this is that, and, and the answer to this is one of our, our problems is that the reason we're not reconciling with people or going through conflicts is we don't have to because people are replaceable. I can mute you and block you and just go to someone else and just hang out with another community. In the past, it wasn't that easy to do that. Before social media, if I didn't get along with my neighbor, I didn't have anyone else to interact with. If I didn't get along with my local church, I couldn't go to another church because there's only three churches in town. So what did I have to learn to do to go through a conflict, to value uh, some sort of a diverse understanding of theology or of the world? Now, that wasn't always good in those societies where you had less options. There was a lot of control and power dynamics. But in this opposite thing where we have all these benefits of connecting with anyone, we're not learning how to go through conflicts. So one of the areas that, you know, I, I talk about with, you know, here's just a, pr a practical one. What does social media allow you to do? To get involved with every trending topic around the world. But what do we begin to do? Just we're just tweeting things and posting things online, not making a difference. Well, here's a difference. Whenever you see a big issue occur in the world, trend local. Go find someone or some situation that personifies that situation. Uh, if you if you care about race relations, then start getting to know some some black friends. If you care about ethnic issues or immigration issues, then hang out in your community with people who are dealing with those issues. That's a way to personalize, to humanize, and to connect in meaningful ways. Outside of just this generic, you know, posting something and arguing with people online about these important issues of our day. Oh, it's so important. Again, Doug Bursch is the author of a new book called Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do about it. It's this idea of like, you know, how can social media be used as a tool for good? And, and how is the church doing right now? Uh, such an important conversation that we have a lot here on the show. And Doug, I'm, I'm curious, just in some very practical ways, like you're a pastor. And when you talk to your church, 
what are very practical things you tell them about social media, whether, you know, it's get rid of notifications or spend this amount of time on social media? What are some real practical steps that you give to your friends or your congregation? Hmm. Well, hey, by the way, during the break, I just tweeted what I thought was wrong with the, ch- the show, and you'll be able to read that later. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We will cancel you. You're canceled. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, well, here's one thing for me as a pastor is I, I believe one of the things Christ did is by going to the cross, he removed the need for uh, intermediaries. That's people who stand between us and God. And sometimes as a pastor, I want to tell everybody what to do, but I cut them off from hearing and discerning the voice of God. And so one of the things I do in this book, and this is the part I like the most. I mean, I like my words and I like the things I write, but I actually, the part I like the most is I, I have questions at the end of each chapter and I have these posting piece challenges. And it's a way to get you to process how you use your social media. And so every single chapter, it's okay. You apply this to your life because if I tell you, well, you need to talk this much and you need to interact this much and only spend this much time. That's basically legalism. It might not be true of you. Some people for your mental health, you need to stop using social media except for very little. Others, you need to use it more. You actually need to engage with the people around you and your family and your friends and, and learn how to use it in a healthy way. But here's just like one practical example I use. And, and it's about inventorying our life. Does our life online represent our life in person? Uh, if you died today, and this is a total pastor thing, right? If you died today, right? <laughs> if you died today uh, and I did your funeral uh, and I read your last two weeks of posts online and in social media, does that represent who you are? Great Would you be nervous about that? Yeah. And I know pastors that I love in person, but online I can barely tolerate them. Because in person, they're they're loving, they're nurturing, they're kind. They've got political views and ideas, but but you always know first and foremost that their life is about Christ. But online, every post, every interaction is some very strong, extreme, angry, polarizing, divisive interaction. Hmm. So to me, there's a problem there that their online persona isn't a natural expression of who they are in Christ. So I ask people, Go over the last two weeks of what you've uh, posted, put it into categories and say, does that reflect who I am? Pray about that. Mm. And then ask the Lord to show you where can I communicate in a more healthy, reconciling way. Mm-hmm. I talk about how to deal with trolling, right? You know, how do you deal with people who attack you and how do you not become dehumanizing with them? And, and again, that's another practical area. What's my motivation when someone harms me? Is it to love them or to dehumanize them? So I even believe you don't call... When someone trolls you, you don't call them a troll because a troll is a dehumanizing term. It's to make someone less than human. It's actually to buy into their behavior where they're not treating you like a human. So I'm going to try to humanize when someone dehumanizes. So again, I ask people to process that. Are you distancing people? Are you trying to love them? Now, one way to love someone, though, is if they're truly trolling you, is not to let them to continue to sin against you. Uh, but to stop that, to mute them and block them and literally hand them over to Satan because you don't want to keep them sinning. You love them. But that's a love expression. It's not to harm the person. It's this person is harming me and harming themselves. And so I'm going to create this boundary so they can no longer do that. And hopefully they'll see what they did is wrong. That motivation piece, I begin to have people look at in every area of your life. And all of us know that we can mess up with that. In a marriage, you can do that, right? You can start fighting with your wife. And then you realize, you know what? These reasons don't really matter until my heart is right. Mm. And until we get our hearts right, this argument doesn't matter. And once you get your hearts right, 
then the way you communicate your needs, because you still might have needs, is in a different focus. I love you, but I need you to know this hurts me. You know, there's it, it changes, right? But for some reason, and it's again with this online dehumanizing reality, we just kind of follow what other people do. And someone's just a stranger in the car and they cut us off. And depending upon how righteous we are, we do something to show them our displeasure, honk or horn at them or other expressions. And then they're just some stranger and they go on their way. But we're called to be the light and life of Jesus Christ, which means our first and last interaction should at some level show the love and truth of Christ. Mm -hmm. Amen. So good. Um, Doug, I'm just wondering to step back a little bit. How do you define peacemaking? Because I, I think sometimes we think peacemaking is literally just avoiding conflict and that's mm-hmm. enough. But I mm-hmm. feel like there's some active nature to peacemaking. So how do you define it? Well, that is so good. And you're right. And this is one of my concerns that people will think it's just, oh, you know, don't cause conflict, get along, go in this mushy middle. I actually have a chapter called when, when uh, you know, peacemaking demands conflict. Because uh, the reality is, uh, you know, we, we see this. Everybody says, right, well, Jesus turned over tables. And yes, he did. Now, he didn't do it every day. <laughs> so if you're just known as the person who turns over tables, <laughs> then you, you got a problem, right? Yeah. Because the reason it's so powerful is that didn't seem like something Jesus normally did. But even in him going into the temple and turning over tables, it was for the purpose of removing the dividing walls of hostility. That money changing experience was going against the foreigners who who didn't have you know enough money and they were being used at the poor who could only buy a pigeon and the cost were prohibitive to their ability to to worship God. That was a dividing wall of hostility. And so God turns over the tables to remove that dividing wall of hostility. So for us, some of us need to cause more conflict. But it needs to be redemptive where I can't just avoid it and opt out. Uh, For me, I'm a middle class white male. I can choose whether I want to enter into some of the justice issues of our time, some of the oppressive issues of our time. Uh, So for me, I think I need to be intentional. So when my friends who I think are being harmed or hurt are, are, are just treated terribly, I can't just sit on the sidelines. I have to at some level say, I'm going to speak to this person. I'm going to communicate truth. But again, as I communicate that truth and even cause conflict, am I just doing it because I'm mad and angry, want to hurt someone? Or am I trying to love my enemies and bring them into the light and life of Christ? That's hard. That's difficult. Right. But I, 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 yeah, that's why I put a whole chapter in there is because I think Christians can use this media to actually cause conflict, but for the right reasons. Jesus caused conflict and you can cause conflict through loving people. But just avoiding it and segmenting ourselves, just hanging out with our Christian friends and our Christian communities, uh, that ain't good enough. We might as well just go home to heaven if that's our life. Yeah. We're called to interact with a world that's dying and lost. That's okay. good. That's good. Again, Doug Bursch is the author of a new book called Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. Hey, Doug, before I let you go, as we said, you're also a pastor. Uh, and so Aubrey and I are both pastors. We're coming out of this pandemic right now. I'm wondering, uh, love to let pastors speak to this question. Are you hopeful for the church as we come out? of the pandemic and life hopefully gets a little more normal. We live in this divided time, as you've described so well. Are you hopeful for the church? And if so, what gives you hope? Hmm. You know, conflicts express the reality of a human being. They What's in us comes out. And I would speak to pastors. I think pastors are just worn out. And we need to not pretend, you know, I know sometimes pastoring is not presenting a false narrative. It's presenting you as authentically as you can in Christ. And so, uh, you know, hope is an interesting thing. I have hope for the gospel. I have hope for Christ. I have hope that in any age, regardless of what people are doing, that the kingdom of God advances. 
At the same level, for those who are listening right now who are involved in local churches, your pastors have been beat up. They've had more people leave their churches in the last year than in any time of their ministry history, and many of them are barely hanging on. So the best way you can spur that hope in their life and in your life is to intentionally reach out and to tell them what you th- you know are thankful for. Don't wait for Pastor Appreciation Month. <laughs> actually, actually intentionally do this. You can change the lives of thousands of people. Yeah. Help a pastor not quit and give up wow. by just saying thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you. Because they're feeling insecure, too. They're like, ah, did, did I do enough? Should I have done more? So to me, I have hope that God is speaking to each person and giving us a redemptive way to communicate love to one another so that we can build and strengthen the church as we move forward. But I don't think God's going to force you to do that. Mm -hmm. So you need to, at whatever level God has urged you on to put feet to that faith and actually bless someone in your congregation, in ministry, a fellow Christian, the pastor, and show the love of Christ as we move forward, because there is lots of work to do as things get a little bit normal as we move forward. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Doug. What is this Pastor Appreciation Month? (laughs) You want to get in on that, huh, Brian? (laughs) Hey, I could talk to you on that month. Goodness (laughs) sakes. We can can give stories about the craziness of how that thing works. Exactly. Again, Doug Birch, uh, co-pastor of Evergreen Foursquare Church in Auburn, Washington. He is also the author of a new book that we can just encourage you completely to go get this book called Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. You can learn more about Doug at Fairly Spiritual org. Uh, that's a fabulous a website, fantastic name, by the way. Title. Fairlyspiritual.org and also on Twitter at Fairly Spiritual. Doug, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for yeah, joining thanks us for today. Being here. It was a blessing to be on the show. It's our pleasure. You're all listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So happy to have you with us today. One of our earlier shows, we did a top five list on top five favorite candies, and you ridiculously said yours is number one is anything of grape flavor. And we now have grape candy in the office, in the studio. Because of our amazing producer. Yeah, it was very nice of her, but I don't know that we want to be encouraging. Your... I did have to hide it from myself, though, because I keep eating it. I don't know that we want to be encouraging your quote unquote any grape flavored candy. Well, you know, someone messaged us on uh, the Common Good Talk on Instagram and said, anyone who says milk duds as their top candy can't be trusted so yeah i i think that person has a psychological problem <laughs> <laughs> someone else someone else messaged us which by the way we encourage you to message us anytime you want to on at common good talk but um someone else said both it was someone from the south both y'all's list is weird <laughs> so go back and find our top five candy list exactly exactly well all right we're coming out of a pandemic hopefully as we said all all the uh caseload numbers in all 50 states are down right now the cdc has said as, if you're fully vaccinated you don't need to wear your mask inside or outside Amazing. anymore like life is relatively normal now like we are moving back in yeah. now you know you still need to wear masks at places where they ask you to wear masks yep. but i mean the cdc you're not even talking about this they also we're kind of focusing on the mask but they took away the social distancing right, for, right. for vaccinated people and so uh why it feels like we're heading into a summer of normalcy and praying that it just stays that way mm-hmm. like that we're back to life but 
uh, an interesting and sobering article that I think we need to wrestle with at NBC News today. It says, back to normal, question mark. That's why I said it that way. Back to normal. Nice. Psychologists warn the pandemic could have lasting effect. Mental health professionals are ramping up their efforts to understand the pandemic's impact and early findings are not encouraging. Before we kind of unpack some of this, just this shouldn't be surprising, but what do you think the lasting effects uh, on people in general, but maybe also kids? Like, what are the effects yeah. do you think that the 15 months of this pandemic are going to have as now we kind of move back into uh, into a little bit more normalcy? I almost feel like because a lot of us, and I've probably said this before on the show, but because we've been, all of us, I think, holding our emotions at bay just mm-hmm. to try to survive. You know, we have been holding... A lot of, I think, anxiety, depression, grief, fear mm-hmm. at bay. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like all of that emotion has to go somewhere. And so I almost feel like the dam's going to open up and all the emotions are going to come out this summer. And hopefully we can process it in a healthy way with our church communities and our best friends and mental health providers and, and things. But I definitely think part of the edginess we're all feeling, the controversies online, the conflict is some of that emotion being mm-hmm. worked out in an unhealthy way. And I think it's just worth acknowledging, hey, we've all been through a lot. Yes. I mean, this has been a hard last year and a half. Absolutely. And not to be naive about the fact that like, there's some emotions that come with that. I mean, I'm, I was even thinking the other day when the pandemic first started, I was crying to Kevin so afraid because I have an autoimmune disease. So afraid like this thing was going to kill me. Mm. And praise the Lord, I, I've been safe and protected. But we've all lost people during the pandemic yeah. too to COVID. And so there's that grief. I mean, I, I guess I think this is an important question. Back to normal question mark. Let's just be mindful. Yeah. Emotions might feel bigger than they have been. Process them healthily before the Lord and with each other. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think that... Um, the the idea of getting back to normal, I do think with that. So now you know I'm outside or I'm I'm at a restaurant. Yeah. Is that people might have the um the feeling like therefore I should be feeling back to normal. Mm. And I think those are two very different things. Like just because we can go back to life as normal, doesn't mean that there's not going to be long lasting effects from what we've gone through. Um, the the you know I think there's going to be some post traumatic stress disorder yeah. for yeah. people. There's going to be anxiety. There's going to be depression. That like you said maybe. Even now, it's going to be worse because the dam, like you said, is going to kind of break. I'm looking at Luana Marquez, an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, said, I'm very concerned about the effects being long term. Mm. Uh, Given that consistently globally, you've seen the levels of depression and anxiety high since last March. That tells me that we're going to see an increasing prevalence of mental health problems globally. Uh, Later on, Catherine Etman from Brown University said, our research has shown an increase in depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and post-traumatic stress symptoms. And so I think uh, part of the the struggle here is just to recognize that. That's it. Like, it's going to... I think that we all think now that life could be more normal, that I cannot have to have this mask on all the time or think about, do I have to socially distance? Can I be with this person? Can I not... Do I have to be fearful of my health? Right, right that we're going to be back to maybe some of the happy-go-lucky people we were before. And some of us will be. Sure, certainly. We don't need to feel guilty about that. But I do think one of the struggles is going to be for people going, why do I still feel fearful? Yeah, what's what's going on when I should be celebrating this time right now? Why do I still want not not really want to be around people? Why do I? You know, and I think we have to unpack that a little bit. So 
Uh, Aubrey, there's people out there right now feeling that, let's say. They're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not excited mm-hmm. about what the CDC said or I'm just down, I'm feeling yeah. blue, whatever. What, what are the steps? What does that person do right now as they're sitting in the car right now or at home going, yeah, yeah. I do kind of feel that way right now? I mean, I think know that like even this article says that 42 percent of Americans express they're experiencing symptoms of anxiety or depression. Only 11 percent were reporting that before the pandemic. Wow. All that to say you're normal. I mean, mm. I think that's a big thing. Be kind to yourself. Don't beat yourself up over it. Just go, oh, right. I'm feeling these things. Yes. This is normal. A lot of Americans are feeling these things. We've been through. I, I just think that being kind to yourself goes such a long way. Don't expect yourself to be um, in a different place than you are. And like Brian said, don't feel guilty mm-hmm. if you're not there yet. And then again, I, I would just go back to don't stuff it. Don't pretend. Get with your good, good friends mm-hmm. and process it with them. Get with your Christian community and process with them. And if you need a therapist, there is no shame in That's therapy. Right. God has gifted Christian therapists with so much wisdom. Don't be afraid to just process with them. And likely your therapist has been through a year and a half too. <laughs> yes, and so, maybe, you know, they understand it. And so I just think there's no shame. And let's, let's honor this crazy, crazy time we've all just been through um, and be okay being frail humans. Yeah. We need Jesus. This is why we need, we Jesus, need Jesus, right? We have part. the Lord who will give us what we need in this And I time. think something else we need to be watching for as parents is watch out for your kids mm, that's good, as Brian. we come out of this. Because, you know, I feel like my life was turned upside down, but I don't think it compares to the, mm, our, our kids, whether so it be adolescents true. or whether it be younger. Little, think about being a little kid where you just, how do you process yeah. the fear now you have about being around people? You've heard it. Like, I, I think we need to keep special eye on our kids and not, sometimes we as parents can kind of subtly pressure our kids like, hey, be back to normal, be happy, go right. play, you know, right. everything's good because we have all these problems we're trying to work through. <laughs> right, right. And so I, I don't think we can do that. That's like, so we good. We need to show that kind of compassion to our children and that love. And so we want to be mindful of this as the church, as a society, as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but also celebrate, celebrate that life yeah. is a little bit more yeah, normal. That's we'll, right. we'll coming up next. Uh, we're going to talk about um, anti-Asian hate crimes and an anti-Asian hate crime bill that just got uh, passed or is expected to get passed and why that's a big deal in Congress. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what should our attitude be as Christ followers towards racism? And then we're joined by Dr. Michael Brown to talk about his new book, Has God Failed You? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Aubrey, I wanted to have a little conversation here about not just about racism, but specifically about uh, anti-Asian American racism and hate crimes that are going on. And this came from uh, the news report that that the Congress has passed an anti-Asian American hate crime bill, which is a great thing. Mm -hmm. uh, But it raises the specter as to what's going on out there. Do bills like this work? And but really, what does the church's response going to be? Here's what I want to do. I want you to hear from Congresswoman Grace Meng from New York sharing about the increase in Asian-American hate crimes during the pandemic and this bill that addresses Asian-American hate crimes. 
Every year in May is a time to celebrate the accomplishments and contributions of Asian Americans, but this year is different. It's different because the past year and a half has been one of pain and struggle, marked by despicable and sickening acts of hate and violence against the Asian American community. Those of Asian descent have been blamed and scapegoated for the outbreak of COVID-19, and as a result, Asian Americans have been beaten, slashed, spat on, and even set on fire and killed. The Asian American community is exhausted from being forced to endure this rise in bigotry and racist attacks. People often ask what Congress is doing about this, and we are here today to say that Congress is taking action. Asian Americans have been screaming out for help, and the House and Senate and President Biden have clearly heard our pleas. This is such an wow. important topic, yeah. A, in our country about Asian American hate crimes and just the increase, especially mm-hmm. since the beginning of the pandemic. But then I also want to, so I want to hear your response to that, okay. but then I also want to talk about what do we as Christians, what does the church do? How do we respond to racism? Well, interestingly, and I read this somewhere, I, I should know where I read it, but uh, a statistic said that Asian American hate crimes have risen 165 percent during the pandemic and so of course i think um of course for asian american people this has been their reality forever for us white people that are sort of waking up to this you kind of go whoa that is not okay and some of the situations are like uh, people being set fire uh, asian american people having groceries thrown at them at the grocery store i mean it has been a devastating, scary, scary year. I have some Asian American friends who are afraid to send their parents out in public because mm. of what's going to happen to them. And I think the reality is our, you know, we follow a God who we know created all people in his image. Mm-hmm. And so this is directly opposed to our faith. And yep. so we should be people who are never silent about racism, who are never um just okay with it, sit by idly about it, don't respond. Like we should be using our voices, our hearts, our prayers, our actions to do something about it. And so I'm actually, you know, I I hope, I don't know what the legislation will actually like lead to, but at Mm -hmm. least now our government is taking this more seriously. Well, let me ask you about the legislation because uh, I'm reading here Representative Chip Roy. He's a Republican out of Texas. He was one of the 62 in the House who voted against it, voted no. Mm-hmm. And he said this, and it's an interesting line that I think is, well, I'm going to let you respond yeah. to because I have thoughts. He said you, we can't, he voted against it because he said it won't be effective because, quote, we can't legisl- legislate away hate. Right. What do you think about that? I mean, sure, you can't legislate away feelings of hate. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. You can legislate actions of hate. Like, we we legislate criminal behavior all the time and so if you're taking violent action against a people group you can legislate that i mean that's like i think i think this is passive i think this is racist i i don't like that he said this i i get like sure emotions you can't change anyone's emotions about anything with legislation we know that from scripture that the law doesn't change the heart but there should be consequences to actions i agree i you're right. You can't legislate feelings of hate, but you can legislate hateful act. You can legislate against hateful actions, and yes. we do that all the time. Yes. So let's get to the more important topic here, and that is uh, how. What is um, 
for us as Christ followers, yes, uh, around the topic of racism in particular, around the topic of hate crime, whatever else, um, one group of people against another yeah. group of people. Not only what should our response be, but what should our foundation be? And you touched on it already mm-hmm. about the image of God. But how do you when you preach or mm-hmm. you talk about racism for the Christ follower? Mm-hmm. What are the lenses that we should be looking for that? What's kind of our frame of reference? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I going back to the Imago Day, I mm-hmm. think that's the most foundational theological foundation that we have. All people everywhere across the world are created with God's image. Mm -hmm. And therefore we are called to treat everyone as created with God's image. I mean, that shouldn't be a question. That is just period, Mm -hmm. period, period, period. What I think we have to do, and we have to be really careful about this as Christians in America, we have to take off these political lenses Mm. that when anyone starts bringing up racism, we go, Oh, they're just woke or they're just political or they're Mm -hmm. just liberal. No, no, no. Take it off. Take off that lens. Don't listen to that garbage. All that is, is a scapegoat an excuse not to talk about the reality of racism. I think we have to be really intentional to be in community with people of color, mm-hmm. but to be really intentional to listen, mm-hmm. really intentional to respond, not just with words, but with actions, to be supportive, to be humble. And, and again, I mean, I think this is the problem. Like when this conversation comes up, it's so politicized that people can't even hear. Yeah. Somehow you have to ask the Holy Spirit to break that so that you can listen to what people who are hurting are saying and go through. The end of the day, that's our call to love our neighbors ourselves. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think that we can never take a stance of superiority in any circumstances, yeah. right? Like the way of Jesus, we talked about yesterday and the day before, is uh, he humbled himself. Uh, and, yes. and he never looked for a position of power for others to serve him, but instead right. to serve others. Uh, and And I think you nailed it. I think... Pastors need to be preaching and we all need to be talking about what does it mean that all people are created in the image of God? Mm -hmm. That is the foundation for how I treat people of other races, how I treat people of other gender, how I treat people uh, who who don't agree with me politically or anything else like that is so foundational to our faith. But we miss that. Like, like. I'm not just created in the image of God and you are, but we are equally created in the image of yeah. God. I don't have more of the image of God yeah. than you do. And yeah. it's so, like that then drives just everything. Right. And and therefore, I also love when people point out the book of Revelation, like if you don't like other races, right. you don't like other people, you're yeah. not going to like heaven. Right, because right. It makes the point to say that worshiping there in the in before the throne is people of every tongue, tribe yes. and nation. Yes. Folks, they're not all going to look the same. Right. And they're not going to speak the same. Yes. Or... And that's, that's, the beauty that's the beauty of heaven. That's right. And so the church needs to be searching for that now as well. That's I good. would say we all need to consistently search. And I think you make a good point. To, as best we can to 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 get away from the politicalization yes. of this topic and the defensiveness of this topic yeah. and just have actual conversations just see the with people, people that this just is have impacting. actual yeah. conversations yeah. coming up next we're excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Brown uh he is the author of a new book called Has God Failed You Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God Is Real excited to have that conversation with Dr. Brown next here on the Common Good AM 1160 hope for your life Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined on the phone 
by the founder and president of Fire School of Ministry in Concord, North Carolina, also the host of the nationally syndicated daily talk show, The Line of Fire, the author of many books, but we were excited to talk to him about his new book that just came out eight days ago called Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God Is Real. He is Dr. Michael Brown. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my joy to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into this book, which just looks fantastic, uh, can you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Yeah, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, born in 1955, came to faith in 1971 as a heroin shooting, LSD-using, 16-year-old hippie rock drummer. Wow. And wonderfully transformed. Yeah, the Lord's amazing grace. Mm. Uh, Since then, I've traveled all around the world preaching the gospel, uh, raised up schools of ministry that have sent out laborers all around the world. Uh, I do a daily radio show, as you mentioned, live call-in show where we tackle all the controversies. Mm. And I'm introduced every day as your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution Mm. and uh, have a threefold focus on our ministry. One R is revival, one mm. to see the church revived and, and experience another great awakening. The next is a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution where Jesus changes us and we help change the world around us. And then the last is redemption in Israel, mm. seeing the Jewish people saved. Our, our heart beats for that mm. day and night. So that, that's what we give ourselves to. I normally write a new op-ed piece on what's happening in the world around us every day and then do live radio. And, you know, with live call-in shows, it really sensitizes you because you hear from people with every kind of struggle, That's every right. kind of situation, every kind of objection, and it makes you really stretch mm. and lean on the Lord to give them solid answers. Mm, that sounds so good. We'll have to talk to you about Israel here in just a little bit. The title of your book, Dr. Brown, is Has God Failed You? What a perfect title for such a time as this. I'm wondering, what are the most common reasons when people think God has failed me? What are some of those reasons? Yeah, the the biggest reasons that people feel as if God failed them would be experiential, that they prayed, you know, they had a sick child, and they were sure God was going to heal their child, and they claimed all the promises, and the child died. Mm. Or they went through a hell of a situation and felt that God just wasn't with them, mm-hmm. and they concluded either this thing is not real or it's not working for me. Or maybe they got burned and hurt in the church, and they thought, if this is what this Jesus thing is all about, I don't want it. So mm. a lot of experiential things, well, that, that, that's the most common, obviously. But then often it's intellectual. They get hit with objections to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Why is the God of the Bible, you know, the God of the Old Testament killing people? And why does he hate gays? And, and you know, I can't reconcile these things. And what about evolution? And, you know, aren't we outdated and outmoded with what we believe? And then the, the more philosophical ones, just the problem of evil. So much suffering, yeah. so much pain in the world. How can there be a good God and so much hurting and pain in the world? So experiential objections, intellectual objections, philosophical objections, and sometimes one leads to another. You know, Mm. bad experience gets you to start questioning things. Next thing, the experiential becomes intellectual, and then people walk out the door. And something that, that we've got to be aware of is it's not just those walking out the door. It's not just young people disbelieving, but there are many people in church and they're going through the motions, and they've done it for years. Some even pastoring churches, but on the inside, they're dying because they're not sure if what they believe is real, mm-hmm. and they don't feel that they can be honest and open about their doubts and their questions. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Dr. Brown, as you said, you grew up in a Jewish household and then became a follower of Jesus. I would just love to know, I know that it's probably 
hours upon hours of that story. But really, thumbnail sketch, how did you go from being a, a, a Jew in a Jewish household to becoming a follower of Jesus? And what was that experience like? What were some of the challenges that came as you made that conversion? Yeah, and, and, and that does tie in with the subject of the book because of the objections that I got hit with. But I did not grow up in a religious Jewish home. In okay. other words, I, I wasn't studying the Hebrew language and, the, and, and Torah and tradition day and night, you know, starting as a little boy. We were more nominal. So I was born mitzvah at the age of 13. We would go to synagogue on the high holy days, but I wasn't a religious Jew. So when the whole counterculture thing happened in the 60s, I had seen my first rock concert, seen Jimi Hendrix in concert when I was 13. Mm. I was playing drums. I, I, I just got caught up in that whole culture. When drugs were offered to me at the age of 14, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, why not try it? And the rock stars do it. And one thing led to another. I have my body somehow wired that I have a high resistance to drugs. Mm. So it took more drugs, harder drugs for me to get high. Wow. And then that became my identity. I was called Drug Bear and Iron Man because I could take <sighs> such massive quantities of drugs. Wow. And wow. then my two best friends, like these two girls, they were Gentiles. They liked these two girls who were going to a little gospel preaching church because their dad had been praying for them and, and their, their uncle was the pastor of the church. So little by little, they got drawn in. My friends got drawn in. I literally went in August of 71 to pull them out <laughs> and, and to show them this whole thing was, was ridiculous. Wow. And it ended up that the people in the church started praying for me. I didn't know it, but literally I went from one day boasting about my sin and thinking I was the coolest guy on the planet, stole money from my own father, and he mm. didn't know it, ripped off my friends, and they didn't know it, man, am I clever, to being riddled with guilt. Mm. And I had no idea why, and mm. I didn't know it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So God made me uncomfortable in my sin, revealed his love to me through Jesus, and when I really understood his love, and when I saw the wicked way I was living, I, I, I surrendered to him, I was instantly set free from, from the needle and from other drugs. And when I, when I told my dad what happened, at first he laughed like, hallelujah, you're saved, right? Mm -hmm. but, but then when he saw the change in my life, he said, okay, Michael, I'm glad you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. <laughs> right. So, so he brought me to meet the local rabbi. Wow. And the local rabbi befriended me. He was a brilliant young man, maybe about 11 years older than me, fresh out of Jewish Theological Seminary. But he challenged me. He challenged everything I believed. Mm -hmm. He challenged me on, on anti-Semitism in church history. He challenged me on what seemed to be misinterpretation of verses in the New Testament and, and so on and so forth. And then he brought me to meet other rabbis. And then, then he challenged me that I didn't know Hebrew. Wow. So when I started college, I started studying Hebrew, but I went to a secular school. So every professor I had did not believe what I believed. And some were downright hostile, hostile mm -hmm. all the way through my PhD at NYU. I never went to a, a Bible school or a seminary, which meant... For years, I was constantly challenged on everything I believed. Wow. I was constantly challenged on whether the Bible is really God's word. I was constantly challenged on whether I was betraying my Jewish people mm. as a follower of Jesus. And, and what that drove me to was I must pursue the truth and pursue God at any cost or consequence. Mm. If what I believe is wrong, then it won't withstand the test. If it's true, it will withstand the test. And that's why I can speak with confidence mm -hmm. because, no, I haven't been through some of the losses that some of the readers have. And I really relied on the empathy of the Lord in my heart and, and sensitivity to, to their situations. If I saw the faces of those in pain as I was writing, but I have been challenged 
year after year, intellectually, I have felt that spiritual pain when you think, oh, no, what if I'm wrong? What if this isn't true? So I can speak with confidence. We don't have to run from objections. We don't have to hide from them. We can give people permission to ask their questions because there are solid answers, eternal mm. answers yeah, in right. the word and from God. That's Amen. Right. Thank you for sharing your story there again. That's Dr. Michael Brown. He's the author of a new book, Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God is Real. And Dr. Brown, thanks so much for staying with us. I'm wondering, there's somebody out there listening right now, and they've got a friend or even a close family member, right? One of their kids or a spouse or somebody that they love. Uh, who they sense is giving up on believing in God, right? Like they're kind of deconstructing or they're saying, I don't believe this anymore. What what would you say to that person? How do you support their loved one? What would you suggest that they do if that's the kind of the situation they find themselves in right now? Yeah, and, and obviously there were two target audiences for the book, one for the person hurting, the other for the person whose loved one is hurting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I'm thinking about both as I'm writing and saying, hey, you may know someone that could use this book. So what, what do I tell that person themselves? First thing, give those to prayer for them. If, if, if you got a, a kid, maybe a 22-year-old, and they say, I don't, I don't believe anymore, or someone else that's drifted away, rely on the power of prayer. No, mm. God is not going to turn someone into a robot and force them to do certain things, but... Prayer makes a difference. I know in my own life, I've seen it. I tell the story in the book of my best friend before I was saved, the, the, the one I mentioned, one of the two that I mentioned. We played in a band together, got high together, uh, got saved together, he before me. I was the best man in his wedding. Hmm. He was the best man in my wedding. And then after several years in the Lord, doubts crept in, struggles crept in. He didn't really open up about it. Little by little, the world pulled him away. He was away from the Lord for over 40 years. That's wow. a long time. Yes. Wow. So now we're both in our mid-60s when we connect again a couple years ago. God basically pulls the rug out from under everything in his life. In his desperation, he begins to cry out. He tells me on the phone, Mike, I'm beginning to doubt my doubts. Mm. Now he is burning for the Lord. Wow. He is excited. He says, i got to tell everybody about Jesus. Wow. I have to evangelize. So this is over 40 years That's away amazing. from the Lord. So wow. prayer makes a massive difference. The second thing is this, ask the person to be open about their struggles and do your best to understand the nature of their struggle. Hmm. In other words, it may seem, oh, their answers are so easy to this, but if it was so easy to them, if it was so simple to them, they wouldn't be struggling. So what you want to do is try to empathize with their struggle, as opposed to you feel threatened by, because sometimes if our own faith is insecure and someone comes with a a deep question, we react like, no, you're just wrong. There's something wrong. I'm telling you, there's something wrong in your own heart. Why do we react like that? Because we're, we're insecure and, and we can't even handle the question. We need to be secure enough in God that even if we don't have the answers to say, you know, that that's a really powerful objection or, or that's a, Man, I, I could understand from your viewpoint why you feel like this. Or, are you willing to think about it more? Or mm. maybe we could maybe we could watch something together. Or are you willing to read something? Or mm. you know, just just tell me how you're feeling. And, and do you mind if I pray for you? Just mm. whatever it is, keep the door open. And and rather than look at that person and judge them, you know, when Job went through his hellish sufferings, the friends misjudged him. Right. And they figured, well. 
obviously only a terrible sinner goes through something like this. So you, you must be a really bad guy. And then Job, knowing that he wasn't a terrible sinner, misjudged God and thought, you must be a terrible God. And in point of fact, neither proposition was true. Mm -hmm. There was something else going on behind the scenes. And and it took to the end of the book where God reveals himself to Job. And even though he doesn't get answers to the questions, he has an encounter with God. And that's why I say ultimately prayer makes a difference because if you really encounter God, if, if you see him, so to say, in his glory and power and love and beauty, the questions disappear. It's like you put your arms around someone that's hurting and you hug them and they cry on your shoulder. You haven't answered their question, but you've comforted them. So we, we rely on God to do it, but keep the door open, understand the issues, and that's go great. on the journey with the person to try to, try to bring them to wholeness. That's great. So good. Dr. Brown, you know, maybe there's a listener in their car right now or in their kitchen right now, and they're feeling like, man, I, I have been praying, and I don't know if God hears my prayer. I, I am doubting the presence of God right now. I have not experienced that encounter that you're talking about. Do you have just a word of encouragement for them? Seek him until. Mm. Hebrews eleven six. he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. if we search for him with all of our heart, We'll find him. Second Chronicles sixteen nine. He's looking through the whole earth to stand in strong support of those whose hearts are wholly his. Here's the long and short of it. When we read Proverbs, it says, if you really seek wisdom, if you look for it more than for silver and gold, you'll find it. The treasures in God don't just fall on our heads like ripe apples from a tree. Often it's in our time of desperation. Often it's in our time when we feel like we've come to the end of ourselves. I'd encourage this person, maybe you're listening right now, to go back and think, did God ever answer one of your prayers? Mm -hmm. Was there a time when you knew that you knew that he was real? Mm. Journal that. Remember it. Rehearse it. Let let that be like a peg in the wall that you hold on to as, as, as you're trying to pull your way up. Remind yourself of his faithfulness in the past when he did answer, when he did intervene, and then determine, I'm going to go after him. I'm going to seek him. The last chapter of the book tells a very moving story, something close to to my wife Nancy and me, an agonizing story of doubt, of questioning that went on over years until this person got to the point and said, I'm going to seek God or I'm going to die trying. Mm. If this is real, if he's real, then he's got to honor these promises and look, you may, you may be busy homeschooling mom. You, you may be out working three jobs. You may not have a lot of free time. You may not have six hours a day to pray. <laughs> but all through the day, there can be a cry from your heart. God, I've got to know you. God, you've got to show yourself. Lord, if this is real, make yourself known. And we're not talking about goosebumps or feelings or some vision, but God knows how to communicate with us mm-hmm. in such a way that we can know that we know that he's real. That's, That's great. And Dr. Brown, as we close this up, this question probably requires a little bit more time than we have, but I, I want to make sure to ask it of you, because uh, there's always that excuse out there that people make nowadays that just says the Bible's outdated, right? The Bible doesn't speak to our society. It doesn't speak to our day. It's just an old-fashioned book. How do you answer that question when people bring that up about the Bible? I begin to show them some of the wisdom of the word. I remember doing that as our daughters were teenagers and getting exposed to more things in the world. I show them the, the amazing teaching of Jesus and think, 
who could imagine this? It speaks to all people, all generations around the world. I tell you, you're struggling with skepticism. Read through Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going through pain and questions and where is God? Let's read through the Psalms together. Uh, you're looking for, for practical uh, day-to-day, uh, day-to-day counsel, day-to-day wisdom. Hey, look in the book of Proverbs and then compare the Bible to the ancient world. Compare the Bible to the literature of the ancient world. People say it's outdated and primitive, and it stands out like a jewel in the midst of a bunch of rocks Mm. full of practicality wisdom. We have two whole chapters dealing with objections to the Bible as God's word that I think will really edify, bless, and help people. Wonderful. Again, we can't encourage you enough to go get this new book called Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure That God Is Real. You can also learn more about Dr. Michael Brown at AskDrBrown.org. That's AskDrBrown.org. And follow him on Twitter at Dr. Michael L. Brown, at Dr. Michael L. Brown. Dr. Brown, this was a great pleasure for us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. God bless you. God bless you as well. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And that music we came back to there, that was Willie Spence from American Idol. You are our American Idol person, but you were telling me that particular performance. Oh, man. Like took you almost into the throne room of the heavens. I mean, I was like, this is it's he's covering the song Glory by John Legend and Common from the Martin Luther King movie. And I was like... This should be performed before royalty. Like it was like earth and heaven meeting. He is a fantastic singer. Okay, so we're going to end the show talking a little bit of American Idol here. A little bit. A little bit of this is to be nice to you because I made you start the show talking about sports. That's my lane. Uh, Your lane is grape flavored candy and American Idol. (laughs) The only two things and uh, binge watching Blossom. Like it's that. (laughs) basically it so that's me to a so team. Are, you, are you caught up on american idol after your vacation yes yeah, so i did get caught up i had to watch two episodes and so i know it's the middle of the week and we're a couple days behind but i think is worth talking about because the world has been in an uproar the american idol world the, okay that's <laughs> no the entire world has been in an uproar over the latest contestant to get eliminated that was 16 year old casey bishop And uh, she was favored to win. And so people have gone crazy, especially on Twitter. I wanted to read this one. I mean, there's a ton of tweets. Many of them contained expletives. So I didn't feel like we should share them. Including your own. (laughs) Right. Including my own because I was so angry. No, she is not who I wanted to win. But this one says, American Idol is an absolute sham. Casey Bishop is 1,000% better than any other artist on this season or the last four seasons. So that's a a real fitness. A little extreme, but um, people are even talking about how they're going to cancel American Idol. They're not going to watch next week's finale, and people are angry. And it just got me thinking. I mean, I love American Idol, 
But it also just got me thinking about, you know, when we experience rejection or Mm. maybe things don't go the way we want to, what should our response be? So, Brian, one, do you watch American Idol? What do you think about this? And two, what do you think about that question? So American Idol is that's a complicated answer. It's not a yes or no uh, answer for me, because if left to my own devices, I do not watch American Idol. Carrie and I, when it was really new, Simon Cowell kind of time, we watched it all the time. Uh, But. My youngest daughter, Emily, loves American Idol, so her and Carrie will watch American Idol, and it's on enough that I feel like... You kind of catch it. I know who Willie Spence is. I know who Casey Bishop is. And so I don't like the... uh, Sorry, I know you want to get to a much deeper question No, no, no. Go right ahead. I don't like how nice the judges are now. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this. You're not a fan of how encouraging they are. You want want, a Simon Cowell in the mix. So I want them to be encouraging. I'm not like one of these guys who likes them getting ripped, right? Yeah, yeah. uh, Like, I'm not that. I don't want a whole panel of Simon Cowells. Like, I don't want that. Okay, okay. But the beauty that Simon Cowell used to bring to the show was that when he said good things... You knew you believed it, it. You knew that person was unbelievable. Right. Like right. right now, if Luke Bryan or Lionel Richie mm-hmm. or Katy Perry says a good thing, you're like, okay. like they always say encouraging things. For the most part, they do. Or yeah. even when they say mean, and I get it. If I were on there, I'd be like, you're all wonderful. Like, <laughs> I, I love totally you so get much. it. But there is something to have in kind of like the Simon yeah. Cowell voice that yeah. I think made it big. And There's I think some people miss that. I'm also amazed. Uh, with Casey Bishop, how young so many of them are. Oh, and they're so talented. It's so crazy. My favorite thing, though, about American Idol when I watch it is, I mean, I've never had like a voice lesson in my life. But suddenly I feel like I'm a professional music judge. Like, I'm like, oh, that person is so pitchy. So they really pitchy should have dog. sung that in a different key. I have no idea. I don't even know what it means to sing in a different key. But I'm just like suddenly really a professional producer. And another weird thing about the I might have mentioned this to you the other day about the uh, music shows. Mm-hmm. So American Idol has cranked out some big people from Kelly Clarkson to Carrie Underwood to Daughtry to some others. Yeah. right? Uh, but do you know that the voice has literally never produced a like mass successful singer. So I heard that somewhere. It might have even been from you, but that's surprising because they've got Gwen Stefani and Adam. Yeah, it's really a little bit surprising. So I don't know what the difference is there, but uh, one of the uh, one of the we'll get to the serious part here soon. But one of the remaining guests, her name is Grace Kinsler. She's amazing, and to tie it all back to you, Brian, she has sung the national anthem at the White Sox games because she's from Chicago. More sportsing. Look I at love that. It. Look at that. Uh, are you rooting for Willie Spence to win? Uh, I'm torn between Grace and Willie because Grace is from Chicago. I like what she stands for. She's trying to sort of be this woman who doesn't look like every woman and is inspiring others. But Willie Spence, man, the guy's voice is just another level. Does anything you just described for Grace Kinsler really matter in the end? Isn't it all like who's the best singer? Yeah, I think all those things matter, okay. especially for the voting audience as America votes. But she's an incredible singer, too. They did a duet this last week, and it was, like, unstoppable. There, I wish there could be two winners, frankly. There was frankly. somebody, of course you do. There was somebody <laughs> that I really liked. He went out at, like, six or eight, and I was surprised. Who I was, was like, that? Do you remember? I don't remember. Well, he was helpful. from. He was from Nashville. He played the guitar. He got voted out, I think, on the Mother's Day episode where he sang a song to his mom. I like that guy. Anyway. Oh, yeah. I know what guy you're talking about. I, yeah, I thought he was. it was time for him to go. I was, I was, <laughs> it was time, it was time for him to go. So to end the show this way, though, how do you deal with rejection? Right. Because how many of our TV shows, by the way, are just about rejection? Isn't that true? From The Bachelor, which I'm sure when it comes back out, you're a big Bachelor fan. I already know this Don't about you. Don't assume this about me, Brian. Am I right or wrong? That show is trash. 
No, do I do. I do watch. I do watch the trash. I, knew I feel it. bad about myself when I watch it, though. So that that's feel about rejection or Survivor, but American Idol, The Voice. It's all about rejection and uh, rejection. You know, on a TV show when you're watching, yeah. like whatever. But in your own life, it's really hard. Oh, it's so painful. You get right? rejected from a job. You get rejected from you know by by a. a um, a boyfriend or a girlfriend that's what I'm looking for. or a spouse, even, but that's even, much deeper. Yeah, even a friend who yeah. maybe you feel like has rejected you. Yeah, I yeah. think it's a big deal. So how do you deal with rejection? I would answer this way, and then we'll close out by letting you answer it. I think uh, the, I will preface this as easier said than done. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest way we we persevere through rejection is to remember who we are in Christ. Yeah, is to go. remember that my identity is not in the job that I have or winning American Idol or you know, getting a rose on The Bachelor or, <laughs> right. or whatever, you know, your latest book, right. uh, uh, you know, um, you know, publisher says, no, we don't right. want that. Whatever right. the rejection might be. I, I don't think and this is big for our kids as they're trying out for things and trying things in life and get and feel rejection for the first time. I think ultimately the answer is, who am I in Christ? What does it mean that I was created in the image of God, I was created, I was knit together by Almighty God. Yes. And in Christ, I'm a child of God, and that can never be taken away right. from me. I understand that's easier said than done when we live with disappointment and rejection. But yeah. ultimately, I think that's how we that's how we stay grounded even when we face rejection. Yeah. How would you I, I that? would affirm that and just say because we have never been rejected, right? In Christ. By yes. God, we are eternally accepted. Then you do have to go back to your identity. And I also think that every new, this is going to rhyme as I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> every rejection is a new direction. Oh, stop it. Right? Right? That's, That's that pretty preaches. good, right? Yes. Does that preach? I should write that down. Every new, every rejection, it leads to a new direction, really. Yeah. I mean, I can see that over the course of my own life. Sure. When a book project has been rejected or when a boyfriend has broken up with me, it has always led to the next thing that God has for me. And ultimately, that has been better. Yes. Because God's will is good and perfect and pleasing, as Romans 12 says. And so I think, though it is painful, and we can say to the Lord, this is painful, I hate this, I don't understand it. When we look back over the course of our lives, we can see that uh, as we have followed God, we have seen him faithfully close the door, but open something Absolutely. new for us because that's been his perfect will the whole time. That's a good word. You you know, American Idol, it's kind of funny. It's a TV show, but rejection is a very hard and real thing in our lives. And we thought we could end with just encouraging those of you who might be feeling the sting yeah. of that right now. Yeah. Know who you are in Christ. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today. If you missed any of the show, go get the podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. We hope that you have a great Wednesday night. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.